All right, well, let me add my good morning, and let me invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Nahum, Nahum chapter 1. If you want to follow along in a Blue Pew Bible, you can find Nahum on page 782. If you have your own Bible, do not be ashamed if you don't know exactly where Nahum is. All right, go to the table of contents, find the page number. You don't have to do the page flip and hope you get lucky. You know what I'm talking about, all right? Uh, And just hope the Spirit leads you in that moment. Um, It's a short book. It's just three chapters. It's easy to overlook. And not just literally, because I think if you were to generate a list of books of the Bible that are overlooked in the Bible as a whole, meaning not read very much, engaged with, studied, preached, applied to the Christian life, I think Nahum would probably fall on that list. Um, Like, what good can come out of the book of Nahum for us today? And that question reminds me of John's gospel. Um, When we read the account of Jesus beginning his uh, three-year earthly ministry, he's about 30 years old at this point, and he's appearing to his first disciples, and he's calling them to follow him. And in John 1, he appears to a young man named Philip, And then Philip, all excited, runs to his friend Nathanael and says, We have found him of Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. Some of you remember what Nathanael said. In response to this news, he says, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? We see all throughout the Bible and throughout history that our God is the God who does what you would not expect. He uses who you would not expect, maybe at first. He's the God who often surprises us in the way that he leads us and provides for us. And so I don't want to project on you, but maybe I suspect some people maybe heard the news leading up today that we're going through the book of Nahum. That we're going to spend five weeks to preach through Nahum. And your initial thought might have been, can anything good come out of Nahum? Anything relevant? Ridgewood, 2023? Oh, yes, I agree. I do think it can, and I'm praying, um, honestly, that God would surprise you in the next five weeks. Are you open to that? That, that maybe there's something uh, that he's going to do in you out of this book that coming to this morning you would not expect. Are you open to that? But if you're new to Grace Church or uh, just visiting, um, our, our primary preaching rhythm is preaching through the books of the Bible. Um, we just came off a vision series that we do each year, and I'm grateful for doing that series. And I feel like, and I hope that and pray that God will use that to kind of fan the flame of what's already burning here at Grace Church and what he's doing here. Uh, but I love just preaching through books of the Bible. I like going to a book and saying, chapter 1, verse 1, let's go. And then we go to the end. And sometimes it takes five weeks, like it will for the book of Nahum, Lord willing. Sometimes it takes five months. Uh, Sometimes it takes longer. Uh, But the reason that we do it is because primarily we believe what the Bible says about itself. And what I mean by that is that Scripture says in 2 Timothy that all Scripture, all all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the people of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And if we believe what the Bible says about itself, if that's true, I mean, just practically speaking, as a local church, we want a balanced diet. We want a balanced diet of books that we're going to preach through, Old Testament and New Testament, uh, different genres and different themes and different lengths of books so that we may, in the long run, by God's grace, be complete in our growth. And in the long run, see how all different kinds of books from all different corners of your Bible point to Jesus Christ. I think I say this quote, reference this quote, every time we start a new book. It hasn't gotten old for me. I'm sorry if it's gotten old for you. But it's one of my favorite Spurgeon quotes. 
where he would tell his church, he was a pastor in the 1800s in England, he says, you know, no, no matter where you find yourself in England, there's a road that leads to London. And so too, wherever we are in the Bible, there's a road that leads to Jesus and leads to the cross. And so now we get to travel that road from the book of Nahum for the next five weeks. Uh, Nahum is what is considered a prophetic book in the genre of prophecy. Uh, there are 17 prophetic books in the Old Testament in total. There are five of what are called, often called major prophets and 12 minor prophets. Now, major and minor indicate the length of the book, not the level of importance of the book. Right? It's not like major leagues, minor leagues, and baseball. It's just merely practically for the length of the book, five long prophet, prophetic books, 12 shorter ones. And Nahum is one of the shorter ones, a minor prophet. And biblical prophets proclaim the word of God to a group of people. They, they, they give you a word about the future. But it's not just a general heads up. It's not just, hey, here's what's coming. It's a word about the future that's meant to impact your life in the present. That is the hope of the prophetic books. A word about the future that's actually meant to impact your life in the present. It's supposed to do something because you've heard it. And so I have to be honest about Nahum. Five weeks. I keep saying five weeks. A major theme, more so than even the other prophetic books, is that we're going to see about God's judgment. God's judgment and his righteous wrath that he pours out on his enemies. And so, you might hear that, and so, and go, okay, I'll see you in six weeks. Or maybe it's your first time joining us here at Grace, maybe it's your first time watching online, and and maybe you hear that and you go, this triggers, and I don't even say this lightly, it triggers some kind of maybe old, not-so-great memories of church, and you kind of go, it's just as weird as I thought it would be. And, uh, and that's kind of a struggle to hear about, okay, we're just going to talk about God's judgment. Maybe you brought somebody new this morning, and you're like, really, Pastor? Like a heads-up would have been nice. That all can be true. But what is also true is that judgment is a major recurring theme throughout Nahum. But here is... The thing about that, as we start, that the meaning of the name Nahum is comfort. So when the original hearers are hearing this, they associate his name with comfort. God does the unexpected. And when this book on God's judgment is, I think, rightfully heard and understood, I hope and pray it will bring comfort to the people of God, not fear. Comfort to be found in an uncomfortable topic and what we can think is an uncomfortable God at times for those who have the ears to hear. So that's our setup. Let's get to it. This morning we're in chapter 1, starting verse 1, and we're just going to read the first seven verses of Nahum. Verse 1, an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Verse 7, the Lord is good. 
a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Amen. Well, as you see, the very first thing we're told about this book is that it is an oracle. It could also be uh, translated burden, a burden, a message, a burdened message concerning Nineveh. Nineveh is the name of a city. It was the name of the capital city of the powerful Assyrian Empire, the most powerful empire at the time in the world. And so I'm going to talk more in depth about Nineveh and the Assyrians next week when we cover the rest of chapter 1. Because the context of that city uh, and that empire provides really valuable insight into the message of this book and the message as a whole. But right after verse 1, this is going to Nineveh, oracle concerning Nineveh, he actually doesn't mention Nineveh again until the end of chapter 2 and into chapter 3. So from there, verse 2, he begins with this extended proclamation of just who God is. Like, who is God? In fact, verses 2 to 7, if you look down at those verses again, they read like a psalm. A psalm of praise, exalting God for who he is. He's an avenger to his enemies. He's a comfort to his people. If you just took those verses and you plucked them out and you put them in the book of Psalms, you would not bat an eye. You'd say, that belongs. That's probably a psalm. And this is perhaps one of, if not the most valuable reasons to read prophetic books and the poetic books of the Old Testament. To not just kind of be generally aware of some of the verses, but to study them because those books are a treasure trove of revelation of who God is. All the Bible does this, but I think particularly you see it in a greater percentage in the prophetic books and the poetic books. Who is God? His very character, his very godness tends to get revealed in these books more so than the others. And, and so one line that I've probably said more than any other line in my years of preaching at Grace, I've been preaching for almost 10 years lot to learn about preaching. But one line I've probably said more than any other line is that learning who God is and being reminded of who God is in his character will do more to shape your life than anything else out there. Like the question, who is God, will do way more for you in the long run than any self-help program you can find. I'm not wholesale against self-help programs or books that are, have the title of like seven tools for a better life. Not against it. But they will pale in comparison to changing and shaping your life than the understanding and dwelling upon the character of God. That, 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 when I mean shape your life, I mean, that, again, that, I, could, I could go on and on about how that happens specifically, but particularly this morning, it is the character of God that will serve as a stronghold when life lands a punch on you. When you get knocked off balance unexpectedly, maybe internal struggle or external circumstance, or maybe you just get knocked out. Again, circumstance, relationships, marriages, the, the, the days in life are like, I just have the wind knocked out of me. I'm off balance. Like, where do you turn in those moments? We all turn somewhere. We all have somewhere we turn when we get knocked off balance. How do you process that? How do you handle it? How do you he handle the fear and the anxiety that tends to rise from that? How do you avoid going down the rabbit trails in your mind that you can never kind of feel like you can spin out of? What is the move? The move is knowing and remembering and trusting who God is. Not just the things he can do for you, but who is he? Enter Nahum chapter 1. And these particular seven verses of chapter 1 set the foundation for the rest of the book. 
as we walk through this book over the next five weeks, we're going to continually come back to these seven verses. They're intentionally starting this way as a reminder of God's faithfulness to his people. So all throughout the book, probably every single week, we're going to go, do you remember what happened in chapter one? Do you remember what Nahum said at the beginning? So with that said, what do we learn about these seven verses? Um, I'm going to limit it just for the sake of time to five things. Five things about God. Who is God? Some of these things are going to be natural to you. Some of these things might rub you the wrong way at first. But it's all profitable for teaching. Five things. Who is God? Starting with number one. The Lord is jealous. The Lord is jealous. Out of the gate, it's the first thing we hear about God. That he's a jealous and he's an avenging God. He takes vengeance on his enemies. Um, when I say jealousy, like word association, oftentimes, if you're like me, it's associated with a negative attribute, right? E- even a sin, that, that, that being jealous is a sin, and it, and it often is and often can be, because we often think about it through the lens of ourselves. So when we hear that the Lord is jealous, I want to be honest and transparent. You don't feel guilty about this, but when you hear that, if your first thought is like, that feels a little off, that feels strange at best, damaging at worst, I understand that could be the case. Um, in fact, when I was studying for this passage, I came across the fact, I didn't know this before this week, but do you know that Oprah Winfrey shared that in her story, she walked away from what she called traditional Christianity at age 28. Grew up, I think, in some kind of church setting, Christian setting, but at 27 or 28, she either wrote this in a book or kind of said it in an interview, she walked away from traditional Christianity. And the reason why is a sermon that she heard of a pastor talking about God's attributes is what caused her to walk away. A sermon like this one. And I want to quote her, not put words in her mouth, this is what she says. She says about this pastor, about this sermon, it's on the screen. Then he said, the Lord thy God is a jealous God. And something struck me. I was thinking, God is also jealous? Jealous of me? And something about that didn't feel right in my spirit because I believe that God is love and that God is in all things. And so she, in her own words, attributes that sermon to kind of be the final straw that said, I'm done with what people call religious, you know, traditional Christianity. It can be uncomfortable that God is jealous that he demands our affections, he commands our love, he demands our commitment, and if we don't give it, he will pour out his vengeance upon those who don't give it. I understand that that could seem just a little off at first, and a bit, I think we'll get in some in- insight as to why we might push against that, but here's the question, what is jealousy? How do you define jealousy? Uh, the, the best and most concise definition that I've seen of jealousy is this, it is an intolerance of rivals. Jealousy is an intolerance of rivals. And jealousy itself is not a virtue or a sin. It could be either because it's based on and rooted in the character of the person who is jealous. And so for our jealousy, it's often rooted in negativity, right? It's an intolerance that we have because of our own pride and our own sin that we need to kind of confront and deal with. But if we're talking about God, this is why knowing who God is is so vital if, if, if God, if it's true that he's the only person in the universe who knows everything and is infinitely wise, and that he's your creator, he's created all things, so he knows everything about you, including what is best for you and best for me, and who, who desires to protect us and care for his people. So yes, he will ensure that no other being, no other rival will get to 
rob our affections to try to be what's best for us. A, a rival that doesn't know everything about us. A rival that has not created us. A, a rival that does not want what's good for us and that's going to lead us astray to be the center of our affections. He is a jealous God, and that is good news. Another way to put it is this, that God is jealous for your joy. He has an intolerance of rivals for your joy. And he wants you to experience the fullness of joy as he has created you to be made in his image. And he knows that fullness of joy can only be found in him. And so his zeal for his people's joy is what fuels the fire of his wrath towards the enemies who seek to steal and destroy that joy from you. That the jealousy of God does not cancel out his love. It's there because of his love. The Lord is jealous. That's number one. Which leads to number two. In Nahum 1, we find that the Lord is patient. Look at verse 3, the first uh, phrase of verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. Uh, if you're somebody who highlights in your Bible app or writes down in your Bible, I, I would underline the Lord is slow to anger. Uh, that is one of your phrases in the Bible that reverberates like ripples across a pond across the entire scripture ever since it was first spoken by God to a man named Moses in Exodus chapter 34. And the reason is because at that point in the Bible, it was the most clearest, most in-depth explanation God gave someone about himself. Self-revelation, who he is. And so from the moment he spoke it, portions of it gets quoted dozens and dozens and dozens of times, Old Testament, New Testament. And so Exodus 34, we can't spend a lot of time there, but Moses is at the top of a Mount Sinai. This is after God freed his people from slavery in Egypt. They're on their way to the promised land in the wilderness, but they've had a rough time in the wilderness. Right before Exodus 34, Israel, just being saved by God, by the grace of God, just rebelled against God. They got impatient. And so they formed a golden calf. They formed a rival, a rival God to worship, to provide for them. And so God vowed to punish Israel. Moses intercedes for Israel. And in a dramatic moment at the top of the mountain, in Exodus 34, Moses says, show me your glory. It's hard, to, it's hard to show the drama in that moment in the text. Like you can feel it when you read it. And to that, the Lord answers by giving a revelation of himself. In verses 6 and 7, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That is a verse that creates ripples across the rest of the Bible to the very end. But what we see highlighted in Nahum is that God's kindness is most often seen in his patience. His kindness towards us is most often seen in his patience. And that patience, as we'll get to in a moment and the rest of the series, does not cancel out his power. But it actually elevates his power. It elevates his strength. This is divine patience. Our God is a patient God. And when he does carry out his actions, it's never done in a hurry. 
Um, it's never done that discontentment or frustration, and he just kind of fall, you know, goes off the rails in a moment and like, oh, forgets himself in a moment. It's never happened, and it never will. Um, you know, one of the things that most powerfully speak to me in my season of life, where Rochelle and I have four kids, age nine and on down, is that when I'm around another family, another mom, dad, or guardian of young kids, when the kids are in the midst of a childlike rebellion, uh, when, it, when it's kind of chaos, what speaks to me is when I see a parent or a guardian respond with patience. Whether out in public, and I don't know them, whether with another family in private settings, and kids just do what sometimes, oftentimes, what kids do, relentlessly. When there's a patient parent in the midst of chaos, it is such a witness to me. You know why? Because I know how unbelievably hard that is. Like, it is way easier to be impatient than patient. Way easier. It takes way more strength to be patient in those moments. And so when I see it play out, man, I mean, like, just you rank the things, like, hey, what do I see in my days that impress me? Like, kind of top of the list right now. A patient parent. And so my question for you, as you think about who God is, and we're just kind of being thinking about this morning, who God is, is God's patience in your purview of who he is? Do you know that God is patient with you? He's patient with your insecurity and social anxiety. He is patient with your doubts and your fears towards him, towards others. He's patient with your battle against sin that you've been fighting for so long. You feel like you can't get over it. He's patient with you. And he patiently responds to his people, slow to anger, by granting the power and the grace to not settle with you in your doubts and fears and sin and just overlook it, but to grant you the grace to overcome it in his timing and all the while draw himself to you. Do you know that God is patient with you? And his patience is real, but it is not to be mistaken with passivity. Patience is not passivity. Don't confuse him. Which leads to number three. The Lord is just. So the back half of verse 3, which again is from the ripple effect of Exodus 34, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Throughout the book of Nahum, the guilty is primarily directed towards the city of Nineveh for their brutal treatment towards God's people. Right? The book of Nahum is an exclamation on the fact that while God is patient, he is not passive. Don't confuse him. And while God at times will permit and has permitted harmful things to be done to his people for their discipline or under his sovereign wisdom. He never overlooks injustice done towards his people. He never has and he never will overlook injustice towards his people. He never overlooks rebellion. And as we'll see throughout the book, he will make it crystal clear that God confronts it all, not in an angry tirade, not again out of being out of control, but a God who is rightfully carrying out justice against oppressors. A God who is rightfully carrying out his justice against oppressors. And there is, in a sense, a great comfort in that. Right? That, 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 that across history, hear me, there will never ever be such a thing as getting away with it. Did you know that? No one will ever, quote unquote, get away with it. 
in the eyes of God. Every person, every nation, every people group that oppresses others, sins against others, harms against others, harms against the Imago Dei, will never get away with it. And throughout the Bible, we see vengeance belongs to the Lord. It is His, and it is sure, and He sees everything, and He will have the final say. And even for those who think they are getting away with it, will one day find out they didn't get away with it. Justice is a guarantee. And so in a sense, that brings comfort to the people of God. But while this is geared towards Nineveh, we also need to understand this morning, church, that the wrath of God is not just reserved for them. We must recognize that Nahum's words apply to all people and to all sins, including our sin. And even if we think, well, we're not as guilty as the people in Nineveh, or we often do that relatively to people around us, like, I'm, I'm, I'm not perfect, but I'm not like my neighbor. I'm not like my coworker. I'm not as guilty as fill in the blank. That might be true. But here's what's also true. Being not as guilty does not mean not guilty. And we know from the testimony of the rest of Scripture that in the testimony of our own hearts, our own consciences that expose us, that that guilt extends to the entire human race across space and time. Um, and when we see that, I think, put down clearly in Romans chapter 1. If you're familiar with the Bible, you know Romans 1, 18 to 21 is one of those hot spots in the Bible. It's one that, man, if this is true, it's a very important passage for us to think about and dwell on. I'll be up on the screen. Paul writes to the church in Rome, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his individual attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. That's Romans 1. Paul is writing to the church, and he's talking about kind of all humanity, the whole race. And maybe church, those especially of Jewish descent, might be thinking like, yeah, get them, Paul. Like, you tell them, guilty. And then you get to Romans 2. And Romans 2 provides some clarity that this guilt also applies to Israel, to God's chosen people. That God did not choose them because they're innocent. He chose them because he chose them in his sovereign will. But the people of Israel, in their hearts, are as guilty as the rest. And then that leads to chapter 3 of Romans. When to kind of put the real kind of uh, clarifying, kind of uh, just throw it all down, we get to chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. This will also be on the screen. Paul writes, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. In case where anybody's confused, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruined and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. It's what theologians call a sin nature. That you didn't necessarily get born and choose this. It was in your nature to suppress truth, to live for your own glory. 
And so if we see in Nahum 1 that God is just, and we see throughout the rest of Scripture that this is true, there's none that righteous, no, not one. You go back to Nahum 1, you look at verse 6, look at verse 6 again. All of a sudden this question comes into view a little bit clearer for us. Who can stand? Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? That's another question that reverberates across Scripture. You'll see it just pop up again and again. Who can stand? If God is just and the human race is guilty, what are we doing here? Where does that lead us? The Lord is just, but gloriously, it does not stop there. We get to verse 7. Look down to verse 7. Verse 7, when rightfully understood, is an oasis in the desert. The Lord is good, number four. The Lord is good. Brothers and sisters, when we talk about the character of God, we talk about his attributes, like the ones that we've covered so far, they can never be taken in isolation. Again, some of them are going to be easier for you to hang on to. Others are going to be more difficult for you to swallow and think about. But they never are taken in isolation. We're not talking about different gods. We're talking about distinct attributes of the same God, consistent God from all of eternity. But as I read the text, I always ask questions of it, like the question that emerges in the text, how in the world do you get from verse 6 to verse 7? Like, like what happened between verse 6 and verse 7? How could you affirm that God is just and no one can stand before him and then say in verse 7, the Lord is good? How can he be just and good? This is not only the question in Nahum 1. This is the question that starts back again in Exodus 34. Keep going back to Exodus 34. It's the question that gets casted off across the entire Bible. That the Lord is merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love. How is it that it says, and, important word in Exodus 34, and he will by no means clear the guilty? How? That's the question that you should be asking. How can that be possible? That's not possible to be both. But God surprises us. This is the road, the first road we see in Nahum chapter 1. That leads to London. The first road that leads to the cross. Because the cross brings together what usually is seen as far apart. God's justice and God's love. The goodness of God is seen and felt most powerfully at the cross. For Jesus died on the cross, not just to make a statement. Not because he was fooled but to satisfy the justice of God. That's why he went to the cross, to satisfy the justice and judgment of God. And, not but, not or, and, he went to the cross to pour out the love of God on his people. And you see that when, when, when we see our guilt laid before us and all fall short of the glory of God, there's only two options for us. It, it, it gets to be pretty simple. I'm not saying uh, it's easy to believe, but the gospel is pretty simple. There are two options left for you. Either you take the punishment for your sin, which is eternal separation from God and torment in hell, or Christ absorbs the punishment on your behalf. It's two options. And there are only two options because God is just but hear me, there are two options because God is love. And those are to be taken together. This is why all roads in the Bible lead to the cross. 
This is why you will not get to the end of any passage of really understanding it until you see how it connects to the cross. Because as Tim Keller beautifully put it, and I always attribute it to him, the cross proclaims that your sin is so serious, so grave, that God had to send his one and only son to die for it. And the cross proclaims that his love for you is so deep that he would even send his one and only son to die for you. His son, who, by the way, went to the cross not begrudgingly, but for the joy set before him. He died on the cross for you. And when you get outside just kind of the religious routine and just trying to do good things to be a good person, when you get outside of that and you can drill into the gospel and the eyes of your heart are actually open to see the the goodness of God's grace and the gravity of our sin, that you are simultaneously grieving over your sin and, and, and blown away by the grace of God shown in love for him, that leads to faith. That leads to trust. Because when you see it, when you actually see it, where else are you going to go? Where else would you want to go? And three days after he goes to the cross and he's right, uh, in the resurrection, he rose from the grave and he declares victory over that sin. He is sure that forgiveness for that guilt is paid in full for those who put their faith and trust in him. That's why all roads lead here. That's why tucked away in the Old Testament, Nahum 1 leads here. Friends, have you responded to the message of the cross? It's good that you're in church. I pray that God is doing a work in you, but you need to know our hope for you is to respond to the message of the cross. That when we say becoming a Christian, it's not about the things you've got to stop doing or things that you're supposed to start doing and find time for that. But when we talk about becoming a Christian, we're talking about a person to put your full trust in. The one who came and did what you couldn't do. And you were called to respond to that to receive him, to say yes to Jesus Christ, to turn from rival gods. Have you said yes? Because it's in that moment when we receive that gift, when your soul could whisper before a just God, he's good. He's good. And that leads to number five, and finally, at name one, what we learn about God? We learn, lastly, that the Lord is refuge. I want to finish verse 7. This is probably the anchor verse for this whole series that we're going to keep coming back to. Verse 7, it's a good one to memorize. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. As I said earlier, this book is written to Nineveh. This message, as we see, it's going to get dark towards Nineveh. But it has deep and info. It had deep and impactful meaning for Israel and Judah at the time. It has deep and impactful meaning for the church today. That God's justice rising up to make an end of the oppressor brings comfort to his people. And so just as we needed to apply the guilt of Nineveh to ourselves and confront that, so too, when we are in Christ, when you have said yes to Jesus Christ, we can apply Israel's comfort to our lives as well. As I said at the beginning briefly, life is full of trials. Like, what is life if not just a series of trials? And some of you are feeling the weight of that more maybe than others this morning. Hardships at every turn. 
adversity, when we face in our families and in our marriages and in our jobs and our own souls and the battles we're facing in our own minds and nobody, everybody thinks we're doing good, but I'm a mess inside. What is life if not just a series of trials? And so every day, not once in a while when you get jammed up, but every day, we must lean into the truth of this verse. We must lean into the reality that we are to flee for refuge to this comfort of the Lord as our anchor. He is your refuge. And the battles that we face, more so than the battles with flesh and blood in this world, that your battles are not primarily against that person you don't like at work, your battles not particularly against that person who's bullying you at school. But our battles are often in our own fears that cause us to lose faith in the fact that the Lord is my stronghold. He is my stronghold. And to lean into that further when we are tempted to despair. And so I want to close with this, that um, Nahum chapter 1 verse 7 proved to be a source of comfort to a man named Martin Luther. Martin Luther, who during his own trials in the time of the Reformation in the 16th century, turns to Nahum chapter 1 for comfort. I know all you guys are already preparing for your celebrations for the end of October, October 31st, for Reformation Day, right? I know it's all in the house and stuff and on the lawn, it's great. Reformation Day, October 31st, 1517. It's the day 506 years ago when Martin Luther had the courage to nail his 95 theses to the door in Wittenberg. Maybe not the official start of the Reformation, but what's kind of the most flagship moment of the Reformation. He was a man of conviction. If you've read biographies about Luther, a man of boldness, unbelievable courage, willing to stand against the powerful Catholic Church in the medieval world, risk his very life easily. But as Alistair Begg says, all the best humans are merely humans at best. Luther feared. Luther struggled. Luther had his own sins he had to confront and deal with to the end. And Luther, like me and like you, needed to be comforted. So I find it interesting that while he, while he found his theological conviction about God and about salvation from Romans and Galatians, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, yes and amen, Martin Luther found his comfort from God in the book of Nahum. A stronghold in the day of trouble. And ten years after he nailed the paper to the door, he sat down and he wrote a poem. The poem would be turned into a song. One that is at least partially based on the truth of Nahum chapter 1. Some of you might have picked up on it because Ilya played it in the offertory. A mighty fortress is our God. I want to read the second verse, and then we're going to stand, and we're going to sing it to close our time together. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabbath, his name, from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. 500 years, the song might sound old in some ways, but it still preaches. It still goes. The message is still relevant today. 
And so would you stand together with me as I close us in prayer and we prepare to sing to the Lord as our stronghold. Father, it is so good to be deeply entrenched in your word. It is so good to pull out just the treasure trove of truth about who you are. Lord, and across this room, Lord, hundreds of people who have all different things going on in their lives, all their minds are racing coming out of here. Lord, so many things they have to think about this week, do this week, hard things, struggles that are across, trials across this room, Lord, and yet we can be unified in this moment with our eyes fixed on you, Lord, who you are, that you are a jealous God, that you are patient, that you are just, you are good, and in all things, Lord, we can trust you because you are our refuge. Lord, let that be true, not only in this moment as we sing, but let it, you be our stronghold this week. Let it be for your glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen.